said earlier, uh, if this is your first or your last, might be your last time after that video. That thing was so long. Um, it, sorry. Oh, yeah. Now you know what summer conference is like. It's really great. It, does, it goes like that for a whole week. It's not just two minutes. Um, so I'm John. I'm the campus minister here with RUF. And um, as Louis said, RUF is a campus ministry, and we exist here at Wake Forest to love God and to love our neighbor and to love Wake Forest. And, um, but we do that because we are convinced um, that God actually loves us and that God actually loves our neighbor and that God actually loves this campus and that God has made that visible to us in his grace, um, his grace to us in Jesus. Um, and RUF, we believe that you are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace and also that you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And what we do and do now is we're going to read the Bible together and we're going to ask what does it mean, um, what might it have to say to our lives. Um, before we do that, I want to make one more announcement um, Sam Sinkfield, our intern, our guy intern, got into PT school, and <laughs> so um, at the end of this year, the, the RUF internship is a two-year um, commitment, and so at the end of this year, he and Sarah, his wife, are going to be moving to Birmingham. He's going to go to UAB um, to become a physical therapist. So we love you, Sam. Congratulations. Um, so what we've been doing this semester, if this is your first time with us, we've been reading the book of Jonah together. And um, Jonah, as we've seen, we've been doing this for about four weeks. This is, this is the fifth week. Um, we've seen the story of Jonah. So if you're unfamiliar with it, the story of Jonah is Jonah was a prophet. Uh, He's a prophet of Israel, and God comes to him and he speaks to him. And so God, Jonah hears God's audible voice, and God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh. Um, and basically go and, and call out their wickedness and preach my gospel to them. And what, what Jonah does is he hears God and he goes in the exact opposite direction. He runs from God's presence. Um, he runs from God's compassion. He goes, gets on a boat um, sailing for um, Spain. As far away, Nineveh is modern day Iraq and goes towards Spain. And while he's on this ship, this God throws a storm onto the ship and he, um, he then He's with these sailors, and they ask him, who is his God? And he says, my God is the Lord who made heaven and earth and the seas. And the sailors freak out, and he says, throw me overboard. And they throw him overboard, um, and the, the storm stops. And the sailors uh, respond to God in faith, because they see the power of God um, with this man. And then Jonah um, hits the waves, and then sinks to the bottom, and is swallowed by a whale, or a big fish. Um, and in there, he has this, this realization. Um, he comes and has this repentance where he, he confesses th- that, uh, that God is the true God and God is the true God of compassion. And that um, when he hits the rock bottom, that's when he realizes God's grace. When he has nothing to do, no way of, of achieving for God, no way of, of um, being good enough or strong enough or smart enough or um, anything enough, that's where God meets him and he, he realizes, he learns God's grace there. And then um, he's spit out on the shore, and he's told again by God, um, go and preach to Nineveh. And so last week we saw in chapter 3 that he goes to Nineveh, and he walks through the city, and he, he preaches the message of God's compassion, that though Nineveh was incredibly evil, God has compassion for the people. And then we find out at the end of chapter 3 that um, they, they repent. The, the, the entire city... In, put on sackcloth and cover their heads in ashes, and that was an old way, ancient way of people um, uh, showing sorrow and sadness, and they repent. Even the animals, even the cows, have ashes and sackcloth. Like it's just the entire city responds to God's grace. Um, and um, it ends with chapter, it, chapter 3, verse 10, it ends with that scene, um, 
And what we're waiting for as the audience is for Jonah to go in and, and enjoy this. For Jonah to wa- We're waiting for verse 11, where he walks into Nineveh and he celebrates with them. And he says, yes, now you're part of the covenant community of God and welcomes them in. You're now my brothers and sisters in the Lord and welcomes them in. And that is a missing verse. That is not in the Bible. Um, Jonah doesn't do that. And this is where kids' Bibles and Christian videos tend to end, is with the, um, the preaching to Nineveh and then Nineveh responding in repentance. Um, they don't include chapter 4, um, because I think they just want to keep things tidy and neat and, and happy, look at the good stuff that God does. Um, because chapter 4 shows us the nastiness of Jonah's heart. Um, and so they don't include this because they want to keep it positive and light and cheerful. But in doing this, they actually miss out in the fullness and richness of this story. The real treasure of Jonah is what we're going to see in chapter 4, which is Jonah actually helps us to ask a question. How far can a Christian run from God? How far away can he run? How long will God pursue her as she runs from him? Where's the point of no return? And what does God do with us when our hearts are far from him? So um, we're going to read Jonah chapter 4 together. This is printed on the back of your bulletin. You can follow along there. I'm going to read this for us. This is God's word for us tonight. Um, It is completely true, and he gives it to us in love. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which, it came, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh? Should not I have compassion on Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 pe- people, I can count, more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Um, Father, thank you for your word to us, and we pray now that you would uh, make sense of it for us. Um, Lord, show us ourselves in this passage, and would you show us your compassion. Lord, help me, um, and uh, Lord, would you uh, bless our, our, our minds and our hearts as we listen um, to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so there's this group in New York called Improv Everywhere. You might have heard of it. It is a, uh, a sketch, sort of a sketch comedy group, but what they do is they do these public acts of comedy. Uh, it's kind of like the flash mob thing that happened three years ago when everyone was doing flash mobs. I don't know if you remember that. Um, so what they do is they do these public events where they bring chaos and joy into public places. 
Like, for example, one of their things was there's this window, there's a, um, a Whole Foods in, in Manhattan that has just a wall of windows. There's like 170 windows that's backlit. And so they decided, hey, let's go put a person in every one of those windows and have them do choreographed dancing so that everyone who's down below can see it, right? Let's bring joy into public spaces. And so Charlie Todd is the guy who, who started Improv Everywhere. And um, the way he talks about it is uh, he talks about, like, their pranks. He calls them missions. And then there's the helpers who put them on. He calls them the agents that complete the missions. And the reason he, he uses that language, he thinks that pranks, when you think of pranks, you think of victims, like people who get pranked or, or victims, where that's not their mission. Their mission is to make people happy. So in an episode of This American Life, which is a podcast, they talk about um, this one mission he does, which is called the best gig ever. And so what they do is they decide they're going to pick a struggling rock band and turn their small gig into the best show of their lives. And so they pick this band from Vermont, Burlington, Vermont, called Ghosts of Pasha. And so they're playing two shows in New York, a Friday night show and then a Sunday night show at 10 p.m. And it's at this club called the Mercury Lounge. And um, what they decide is they realize that if, these, if this band has friends, all their friends are going to come to the first show. And so they said, well, there's going to be no one at the second show, so let's do something for the second show. And so they recruit 35 agents... And then these 35 agents go on the band's website and they memorize the six songs that the band's recorded. So they know the songs by heart. And then they make t-shirts of the band and they get temporary tattoos of the band um, that you know, look like real tattoos. And then they enter the club separately or in pairs, pretending not to know each other. Um, and they come in as the opener's clo- ending and just as the, uh, the Ghost of Pasha are, are coming on. And so by the time the, the Ghosts of Pasha are doing their sound check, there's three paying customers, and there are 35 of these Improv Everywhere agents. So it's an agent of 38 people. And then once the Ghosts of Pasha say, hello, Mercury Lounge, they just explode and applaud and cheers. And like there's one guy, there's always one guy at the concert, right? He's doing like the spaz out dancing in the front. And then there's like people taking off their shirts and spinning them around their head. And um, the energy of the crowd continues to go and they start requesting songs. And this band has never recorded an album. They've only put it online. So they're kind of uncertain of why this is happening. And the, the band, the, the audience is singing along, knows all their lyrics, cheering, more and more energy. The band, they said they were exhausted, but the energy of the crowd just made them feel like they felt like rock stars. You know, this band that loves them, that knows all their music. And then at the end, as the lead guitarist pulls his plug out of the amp, everyone disappears. Um, they just vanish out of the club. No buying drinks, no autographs, no hanging around for picks. And so there's this magical, dreamlike high, this energy, this excitement in the club, and then nothing. And in the interview, the band is so upset. <laughs> they find out what happened. Um, and they're angry, they're a little paranoid, they feel foolish, um, because they have this reality check. They're not superstars. Um, they're still just the ghost of Pasha from Burlington, Vermont. Okay, why do I tell this story? Um, so Jonah just preached the largest revival in human history. 120,000 people and the cattle. I love that that detail is included. And the cattle. 120,000 people repent. More than 120,000 people repent. And for all the hype and rush of the revival afterwards, Jonah is still the racist. Right? He does not want God's compassion to go to, to go to people who aren't like him. He's still the fugitive. He's still selfish. He's still that foolish person that he showed himself to be in chapter 1 and that he confessed himself to be in chapter 2. And this is a hard reality check for us, 
Why is this a hard reality check? Because we really want Jonah to be different. Right? As the audience of this book, we really want Jonah to be changed by the message he preached. We want to see his transformation. We want, because we want to see ourselves in him, and we want to see his transformation. But this just doesn't happen. And even deeper than this, there's a reality check for us about God. God is, despite all of Jonah's self-absorption, despite all of his racism, despite all of his running, despite all of his foolishness, God is still patient and gracious and faithful and pursuing. He's still the God that he shows himself and he confesses himself to be in this book and in the entire Bible. And so what we see is we just see how ridiculous Jonah is. We see it, God knows it, Jonah knows it. And there's a temptation for us this evening to say this, to say, God, you went too far, and this has backfired on you, right? God's beautiful, passionate, tenacious pursuit of Jonah has devolved into this foolish, stupid infatuation, right? He's God, and this is like that mom who, she celebrated the first time she bails her son out, and then is ridiculed when she bails her son out the hundredth time, right? You know, it's the old saying, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, right? It's time to cut bait. It's time to find someone else. Jonah will never learn. God needs a new prophet. He's extended grace too many times, one time too many this time. God is starting to look foolish here. Like Jonah will never learn. And we say this about Jonah, and we believe it about ourselves, and we believe it about others around us. And here's our problem. We have the wrong view of God's grace and this distorted view of how change actually happens in the Christian life. And Jonah offers this reality check. He shows us an unflinching look that this is how humans actually are. And Jonah reveals to us that we are far more foolish and needy than we care to think. And yet, God is more faithful and gracious and powerful and patient than we could ever imagine. So what we're going to see tonight is we're going to look at the foolishness of Jonah. And then we're going to look at the faithfulness of God. So first, the foolishness of Jonah. We see this in the first part of the passage. Um, we see in verse 2 that he's antagonistic towards God. Right? He criticizes God to his face. He corrects God to his face. He mocks God to his face. He takes what he, the thing that he says to God, Oh, you're merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. What he's doing is this is um, when Moses asked to see God, asked to, um, to see God face to face, God took Moses and he hid, them, hid him in a rock and, and walked past him so that Moses could see just his backside. And when he did this, he said his name to Moses. He said, I am the Lord. The Lord is slow to anger and compassionate and abounding in steadfast love and faithful um, and patient. And what Jonah's doing is he's taking that name and he's throwing it in God's face. He's mocking him. He's taking God's attributes and he's calling them flaws. They're liabilities. Jonah is attacking God because of his mercy to Nineveh. So he's antagonistic towards God. And he's just absurd. I mean, look at verses 3 and 5. He says, take my life. Like, this is so bad. Your grace is so awful. Take my life. It is better for me to die than to live with you being merciful to my enemies. He throws the ultimate pity party. This is the most amazing display of pouting. I mean, I've got small children. I've, I see lots of these pity parties thrown often. But Jonah just takes the cake. He goes outside the city. He builds himself this tree fort, this little booth. And he just sits there and waits for awful things to happen to Nineveh. And he's suicidal in his misery. He's created this misery for himself. And he's saying to God, take my life. It is better for me to die than to live. He's antagonistic. He's absurd. We see in the first verse that he is seething with anger. 
In this passage, God has every reason to be angry and vindictive and wrathful and to unload on Jonah, and he doesn't. And Jonah has no reason to be angry, vindictive, and wrathful, and he's livid. He's furious with God. Right? Most people are, God, are angry with God because they don't think God is gracious enough, not relenting enough. And here Jonah is exceedingly displeased. He is super angry because God is gracious. And his anger is this branch that flowers out into his antagonism and into his absurdity. And Jonah's reaction is unreal. Right? He's just preached the largest revival in human history. And he responds like this. This is not the response of somebody who worships and serves the Lord. I mean, why? What drives this absurd, mocking antagonism of God? What is at the root of Jonah's foolishness? What would cause Jonah to view God's gracious sovereignty as evil? And why, why is Jonah so angry? And the key for us here is to look at Jonah's anger and for his anger to serve as a mirror for us so that we'll actually look at our own anger. Because our anger reveals what we worship. Our anger reveals what we worship. Now, some of you know when you get angry. Like, you'll talk to a friend, you're like, yeah, yeah, I know I get angry at some things. You're aware of your anger. Others of you don't think you get angry. Um, you don't think that you're an angry person because you're like, I just really don't get angry. I mean, you, you've told me this. So for those of you who don't think you get angry, could it be that you're actually angry all the time? Could it be that you have this low-level anger and you don't even know it? Um, I heard a, a story on NPR last week about a woman who has, um, who's dying of cancer and she just has chronic pain. And the interviewer asked her, um, are you feeling pain right now? And her response was, I don't know. Um, I feel pain all the time, and I'm constantly in it, so I just no longer pay attention to it. Could that be the same for you about your anger? Um, that if you're angry all the time, you get so used to it that you don't feel it. Right? It might come out in pessimism towards the world. Um, maybe it comes out in distrust of those around you. Maybe you just have a, um, a permanent frown. Or maybe you're, you're always cursing things under your breath. Um, here's the thing. We all get angry. And our anger reveals what we worship. Right? When our hearts are properly worshiping and loving God, we get angry at the things that make God angry. But more often than not, our anger reveals that we're worshiping idols. That we're worshiping idols. Well, what are idols? What is idolatry? Uh, there's a pastor named um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he says this about idolatry. He says, an idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that is central in my life, anything that seems to be essential, an idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend. Anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts so much of my time and attention, my energy and money. Y'all, and this is all of us. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Right? We, we all, all of us, have a worship disorder. All of us make the good things that God gives us, we make them into ultimate things. We make our achievement, we make your grades, or success, or your body image, or your future, or your identity, or your comfort, or your relationship status, your wealth, your desire for attention and affection. All of us take, take the things, the good things that God has given us, and we make them into ultimate things. We make them ultimate in our hearts. Jonah is just like us. He has, this, he has a divided heart. His loves are disordered. He has a worship disorder. He's settling for false gods, these pseudo-saviors, these stitched-together approximations of God. 
to confirm and to meet his comfort and his convenience and his preference. And in Jonah's heart, there's a rivalry between the virtual gods of his own imagination and the true God. See, the Nineveh isn't the issue here. The conflict in this book isn't between Jonah and Nineveh. The conflict is between Jonah and God. Nineveh is the circumstance that draws out Jonah's heart problem. It draws out his worship problem. And as long as the true God doesn't disturb his idols, everything is smooth and workable and good for Jonah. But as soon as the true God acts contrary to Jonah's idols, this vitriol, this anger, this abuse starts flowing out of Jonah's heart. And the same is true for us. As soon as God acts contrary to our idols, our anger flares up. Our hearts say, if Jesus gets in the way of my plans, Jesus has got to go. There's a 17th century pastor named Stephen Charnock, and he says this. He says, each person acts as if God could not make him happy without the addition of something else. Each person acts as if God could not make him happy without the addition of something else. This is what our hearts do. Our hearts say Jesus plus something. Jesus plus money. Or Jesus plus fame. Or Jesus plus me being right. Or my success. Or my comfort. Or that guy or that girl. Or a friend that I can trust. Or Jesus plus me getting good grades. Or me getting that internship. Or my family being healed. Or me making my family proud. And as long as this is the formula of your heart. Jesus plus something equals happiness. As long as this is the formula of your heart, you will never experience full freedom. You will never experience that sweet release. You'll never experience purpose. You'll be prevented from experiencing the joy of being fully human. And you may think that your idols are helping you, but they're trying to kill you. Your idols are trying to kill you. I heard a story about a woman who sleeps with her pet snake Not a little garden snake. Um, Sorry for those of you whose animal that you hate is snakes. This is going to be an uncomfortable illustration. Um, She sleeps with a massive boa constrictor. And this woman gives one half of her bed to the snake, and then she takes the other half. She's quite obviously obsessed with her pet. We can all say that. Probably not a healthy relationship with this snake. Anyways, um, after a while, she starts to realize that the snake has stopped eating. Snake has stopped eating. It's been over three weeks. The snake hasn't eaten a crumb. And so, okay, the snake is obviously sick. The woman brings the snake to the doctor. It takes only a second for the doctor to figure out what's going on. And the doctor says this. He says, whenever a snake is about to eat really large prey, it stops eating so it can make room. Yeah, let that sit. You get, all right. Y'all, God doesn't want you to be eaten by a snake. And God wants you to be free from your idols. Like, this is the the reality of your idolatry. I mean, it's crazy. I lost you on that. It's so gross. Um, But that's what our idols do to us. Like, we we think they're a friend. We've got them cuddled up in bed with us next to us. We think everything's fine. But really, they're just trying to kill us. And God does not want our idols to kill us. And God goes after the idols and after the distortions and the approximations, the, the, the lives that we believe, he goes after them by turning the lights on in our hearts, by exposing them, by illuminating them to us. He does this not to shame us, but to relieve us of them, to release you from the bondage, from the anger, from the slavery and the wasted time they create. So a question for you, what idols are at work in your heart tonight, today, this week, um, Fill in the blank of Charnock's equation. 
God can only make me happy if he gives me Jesus plus X. Or God can only make me happy if he gives me X. What is this for you? The the foolishness of Jonah is that when he was in the belly of the fish, the bedrock of his prayer, he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. He says, those who worship idols forsake God's steadfast love. Like, he confessed this. This was his confession. And yet, this is his confession. He knows it, and yet these idols still have control over his heart. And that's what makes him angry at God. What makes him attack God, what leads him into absurdity, um, his foolishness is his idolatry. And in response to Jonah's foolishness, we see God's faithfulness. So we're going to look at the faithfulness of God. So the question for us is... What can change a heart? What could make a heart melt? A heart that's defiant. For us and for Jonah. What could unshackle a human heart from the power of its idols? And the answer that Jonah 4 gives us is that it's the long, patient, faithful, gracious character of God. Who takes the long-term view of our change. And the long-term view of our sanctification. Um, I just want to look at one idol in particular and talk about this. Let's take the idol of academic achievement here at Wake. The academic achievement idolatry. So for you, it might sound something like this. I know this is what it sounds like for me. Um, Schoolwork is your master. First, you start to love it because it gives you what you want. You learned er early that if you knew the right answer to the things people asked, they would praise you. If you got good grades, you get praise. Then you start to serve it because it gives you what you want. You start to work to get grades because you know that they will lead to the praise. Then this starts to move internally. Not just what others say, but what it justifies you thinking about yourself. I'm better than the people in the red reading group because I'm in the green reading group. right? I'm in AP English. And then it starts to master you. When you feel like you might not perform well enough, to get, you start getting anxious or afraid. You start worrying. You pull four consecutive all-nighters. You stop doing things that you used to enjoy. I don't have enough time for my friends. I've got to study. I don't have enough time for church. I've got to study. It occupies your thoughts. It consumes you. So how do you get any traction with this idol? How do you unseat this? I think what we most often do with this is we want to take a hammer to it. Um, we demand the change that we want to see. We beat ourselves up. But hammers only shatter stony hearts. There's a, uh, an old sketch that was on a show called Mad TV, which is like Saturday Night Live. It was on when I was a kid. And um, there's this one sketch of a woman walking into a, the office of a therapist. And um, she tells him, um, I'm scared of being buried alive. And he goes, okay, well, what else are you scared of? And she goes, well, I'm scared of going into tunnels. I'm scared of riding elevators. I'm scared of being in houses. Really, anything that's a box. I'm scared of this. The therapist says, oh, so, so you're claustrophobic. And she goes, yeah, I guess you could say I'm claustrophobic. He goes, all right, I'm going to tell you two words. And I want you to remember these two words, and that's all I'm going to tell you. And so she gets, should I write this down? And he says, no, you can probably remember this. But if you want to write it down, you can write it down. And she says, are you ready? And then he just yells at her, stop it. Stop it. And she's like, what? I don't know if I understand you. He's like, stop it. Just stop being claustrophobic. She gets a little uncomfortable. He says, okay. He's like, are there any other problems? She goes, well, I'm, I'm bulimic. And he goes, stop it. That sounds awful. That sounds like a horrible thing to do to yourself. Just stop it. Stop doing that. 
And she's like, well, and I also have unhealthy relationships with men. Stop it. Don't you want to have a healthy relationship? Just stop it. Why are you still doing this? Right? This is funny, but it's just like, that doesn't work. Like a hammer only shatters a stony heart. And God doesn't respond to our idolatry with a hammer. Right? He, he, his response to our sin and our idolatry is not shaming. He doesn't yell, stop it at us. He doesn't shame you into obedience. So how does God treat your idolatry? How does he treat my idolatry? What does he do with our hard hearts? Well, he responds with rivers of mercy, which slowly over time change and, and wear down our hard hearts. If you think, I'm thinking of the heart as a, as a rock, right? A hammer would crush it. But um, uh, we lived in Richmond for eight years, and the James River flows through Richmond, and there are these great rocks that we go rock hopping on. And it was amazing to see these rocks that had been smoothed down over time. Over, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of millions of how many years it takes to smooth down a rock. But over a long period of time that these rocks, the, the, the waters actually did the work of smoothing the rough edges um, of all of these rocks. This is what God does. His, God, his grace is like a river of mercy. The way that he changes us, slowly over time, he smooths the rocks. His mercy is... Steady and faithful and persistent and slow. It's often unperceptible. Look at God's faithfulness to Jonah. We see that he pursues Jonah with searching questions. This is verse 4, 9, and 11. He reasons with Jonah. He draws him out. He invites Jonah to consider his idolatry in light of God's grace. He's not just there to fix him. Like He doesn't shame Jonah. He asks Jonah about his anger. He's patient with him. He, he draws him out into his love. And then God pursues him with a severe mercy. He appoints a vine, a worm, a scorching east wind, and then the heat of the sun. He changes Jonah's circumstances multiple times. He allows Jonah's suffering so that his heart will be exposed. So that Jonah can actually see his idolatry and his foolishness. And what he's doing here is by exposing Jonah's idolatry, he's giving Jonah the opportunity to change. The opportunity to repent. And maybe God's doing this with you right now. Maybe God is changing your circumstances to uncover your idols. And it feels severe. Like it really hurts. But if this is what is happening, God is doing it to free you from them. Maybe you not getting into that sorority or fraternity or you not getting that internship. This is what God is doing. Maybe like Jonah, God has appointed something that feels like death but is given to you so that you might turn to God and have life in him. Y'all, your idols are trying to kill you, and God loves you too much to let that happen. So God pursues with searching questions, he pursues with severe mercy, and he pursues Jonah with saving compassion. This is verse 11. If God is big enough to have compassion on the Ninevites and their wickedness and their evil, he's big enough to swallow up your foolishness. He's big enough to swallow up your anger, your absurdity, your antagonizing, all of it. And we see this most clearly on the cross. That on the cross of Christ, um, we see the most perfect expression of God's saving compassion. Jesus doesn't shame us from the cross. He doesn't yell at us from the cross. No, he actually receives the shame. He receives receives the vitriol. He's heckled. He receives the anger. Ultimately, he receives our sin and the punishment it deserves because of his great love for us. Friends, we're just like Jonah. We're prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God that we love. We're prone to idolatry. We're prone to this worship disorder. We're prone to antagonize and correct God. And Jesus interposes his precious blood for us. 
God's faithfulness is made most clearly visible to us in Jesus. And his faithfulness to us in Jesus actually enables us to pursue faithfulness. It it enables us. That love, the love of God, actually enables us to forsake our idols, to dismantle them. God's faithfulness to us in Jesus leads us to see God as he actually is and to bring our idols to him in prayer and repentance so that he can destroy them. And the ending of this book, the ending of Jonah, it feels like a cliffhanger, right? It ends with this question, God asking Jonah, should I, should I not pity, pity Nineveh? Should I not have compassion on them? And we're not given an answer. But this book is not a cliffhanger. The faithfulness of God swallows up Jonah's foolishness, and Jonah is transformed. So how can I say that? How do we know that? Because we have the book of Jonah, Jonah told on himself. He took this story that only he could have known, and he tells on himself. We don't know if he wrote it. We don't know who wrote it. But we know that he told on himself. He owns this. He displays this, the reality of his own foolishness and God's faithfulness to him. And in that, Jonah's life is a gift to us. So that we can actually be patient with ourselves. And patient with God and our growth and grace. And we can be urgent with God and urgent with ourselves and our growth and grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Jonah. We thank you for um, your goodness to us and giving it to us and how it is consistent with the whole of your Bible that tells us the story that though we are foolish, though we are sinful, though um, we wander, uh, you are consistent and compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I want to pray for my friends here tonight that... um, Lord, this message of your grace would sink deep into their hearts, that they would know they were loved, and that you would um, comfort them in this, Lord, and lead them uh, to forsake their idols. We love you.